Hi, this is Paul, and you're listening to Archonnect Sessions, episode 118. This week, we're introducing a new format to the show, inviting guest hosts to lead the conversation to discuss topics in the news and topics that interest them from their perspective. This new format won't replace our existing format. Rather, it will offer the opportunity for other voices to share this platform occasionally by invitation or by request. Today, our guest hosts are Mitch McEwen and Mark Miller. Mitch and Mark have both been on our podcast previously and have had an important presence on Archonnect as a blogger and as a voice of intelligence and reason in our discussion forum. Mitch is the principal of McEwen Studio, co-founder of the studio collective An Office, and an assistant professor at Princeton University's School of Architecture. Mark is an assistant professor in the Department of Landscape Architecture at Penn State University. So, Mark, I didn't know that you were on Archonnect before, and so now I feel guilty that I didn't listen to the podcast that featured you. When was that? Uh, we were talking about Ben Carson. Oh, goodness. Okay. So that was uh, <laughs> last fall. Okay. And his appointment and just how... Well, the sort of unclear mission of HUD in general, right? mm-hmm. you can't look at it and really understand what they're, what they're doing. And then what he was or was not bringing to the table as the uh, new head. So that's what the topic was. And then we also uh, touched briefly on uh, the passing of Zaha Hadid oh, okay. and Patrick Schumacher's. Um, his, I characterize it as he sort of let down his guard a little bit and showed a softer side reflecting on uh, Zaha and what she offered. So Okay. Well, so I guess the big the big news, it would be odd not to talk about the big news of the day, right? Which is the Pritzker Prize. Mm. The ball and I haven't seen you uh, tweeting about it yet, but um, No, I haven't. I got on there and was pretty excited. The Balkrishna Doshi, who is the first mm-hmm. Indian to get the Pritzker Prize. What's your take? I was a little surprised, partially because, you know, there's the running joke that Stephen Hall hasn't gotten it yet. So there's that first initial reaction. But even beyond that, it was just this person that was from out of nowhere, essentially, or seemingly so. But then you look at the body work and it's like, oh, yeah, yeah, you're welcome to the club. (laughs) Right. Because or, you know, not even the matter of that as much as why didn't I know about this person before? Which I think is the bigger question. Right. Right. Someone who's a, a a friend of mine from kind of the New York City architecture world and um, someone who I, I follow now on Twitter more than real life is Keon Go was saying that, you know, Keon actually teaches this person and was glad to see, you know, from the perspective of urban ecology and working on different ways that from the very beginning, a program can incorporate you know, political possibilities around housing, you know, excited to see this person. But yeah, I, I really look at it's the first time that I'm seeing the work too. you know, certainly the first time I'm recognizing all the projects together. Right. I mean, obviously Mm -hmm. their Corbusier work, you know, that, that we all know that, but then, you know, so it's like seeing this person get the Pritzker, you realize, okay, there's a whole legacy of modernism that somehow, you know, where is not on all of our radar. And that also there's this incredibly rich way of working that it seems to be so steeped in the ambitions of social housing, public institutions, and also really using architecture as a place to create new institutions, right? In terms of, you know, Doshi having founded multiple architecture schools and then also designed them, right? So, Right. So there's this larger mission in practice and in pedagogy that's really interesting that is not as evident or not as overtly evident. So, yeah, one of the things that I've seen you talking about 
you know, and that we kind of discuss on on Twitter is also this relationship between, you know, more like the urban scale work of institutional mm-hmm. building or, you know, the relationship between disciplines at the urban scale and then what it is that that architecture is able to discuss, right? Right. And something that I am really interested to hear your perspective on is really how how landscape for you is this lens to understand urbanism, right? Because I see you often digesting policy initiatives or digesting also the politics of the way to, that architecture as a discipline understands itself. So how does how does landscape as a lens operate for you? For me, at the most fundamental level, I would say, or the bluntest level is you can't have a building without property, right? You need to have those boundaries. You need to control those boundaries in order to set up the other. So even in that, there's this manipulation of, of space and of people as a byproduct that comes online even before you start imagining what the built form will be in that place. And then after that, just thinking about what happens in those interstitial spaces once the building's been constructed becomes this, for me, it's this interesting place where you start to see to what extent things are being manipulated. At one point, it was everything beyond the door was being manipulated and controlled. And now we're getting to the point where, well, no, we're trying to actually control not just the experience within the building. We're trying to control the experience on the sidewalk and articulate everything so we can have everything look almost like the Photoshop drawings that we're trying to present to you with the the, the luxury, people taking the luxurious strolls and the children with balloons. So for me, that's those are the basic questions. And then from there, it's always this matter of mapping these things and looking at how these territories start to play themselves out using geospatial data, looking for the surprises and the disconnects uh, and seeing how, how these things are being manifested or, or the long-term goal would be to, as I've noticed you're trying to look at, um, predict what's happening, right? Because planning as a tool is one step behind in the respect that developers are actually projecting 10 years ahead. And once they figure out what those 10 years are, they're also looking about where we're going to put money next, which means they're already mapping out territories and spaces and trying to to imagine what that next next will be. So, yeah, you're kind of talking about my, my Twitter challenge from Paul Goldberg. Exactly. Right, you know, right. And, and of course it's happening. So why aren't we paying attention to that? So there are these interesting disconnects and fantasies that, or, or not fantasies, but uh, omissions that are occurring in the way that we're looking at things. It's interesting because when you started immediately talking about property as something that that landscape architecture kind of, you know, brings to a perspective on the city, which is, is, you know, not the first thing that, you know, comes to mind when when I, as someone who doesn't work on landscape, you know, think of that. Mm-hmm. But the way you're talking about it reminds me of Craig uh, Wilkins' book, Aesthetics of Inequity where he's immediately getting into the philosophy of, of property and how that's something that, that Black architects can work on in the city and really understanding that architecture implies a relationship to property and then therefore a philosophy of, of property. Um, and I hadn't thought about my Twitter beef with with Paul um, Goldberger in that way, but, but just to explain that, you know, what's at stake there is that there's a preservationist argument for basically stopping the demolition of the Union Carbide building. And part of what's happened amongst the preservationists is this kind of surprise 
that the rezoning and increasing FAR would threaten that building with demolition. And some of the preservationists have said that no one could predict that. And I think that that's a challenge, that I think somebody could have predicted that. Right. And it happens all the time, though. What do you mean? Well, in the sense that that's prime property. So if we can't get the numbers to work, right, there's that classic line, you know, you've got to get the numbers to work or everything has to pencil out. Something has to change. So regardless of what's there, there's always a question of what do we need to have there in order to get the rate of return that we're looking for, right? Which is a very different lens, but that's the other conversation that's happening. Completely. And and that's where I feel like, you know, in architecture today, we have so many computational tools mm-hmm. and yet somehow those tools tend to end up serving a primarily aesthetic project where I'm much more interested in those tools being part of political project um, and, and entering a political project um, specifically through things like property and the terms of property, the terms of preservation, uh, costs, labor costs, material materials costs, mm-hmm. which it's funny. I was just looking at a, a book from the Bauhaus today and, you know, none of this is new. You know, it's just that, again, I think going back to the, the Pritzker thing, it's like there are certain legacies that get erased, even if they're legacies of modernism. Right. Well, was that something you were starting to get at when you were when you put that post out? the blog post on our connect about what do we allow ourselves to forget? Yeah. What do we allow ourselves not to know? That's part of it. I wasn't so much thinking in terms of the history of architecture. I was thinking of it more in terms of what is it? I mean, in a way, what you were talking about with the rendering, like this kind of happy rendering, you know, of somebody walking on the sidewalk with a balloon. What is it that we allow ourselves to erase even in the act of drawing? Um, <laughs> you know, erasing, of course, right. the person who is sitting on a grate because that's where the heat is coming from and they have no other place to sit. Right. 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 Or or what I was talking about more specifically, because so much of my work is in Detroit and working on on vacant buildings there and understanding that there are different conditions of already public space, right? Because they're publicly owned and it might be a house, it might be an old school, it might be something else, but that there's ways in which we hesitate to draw something unless it's our authorship or our intent, which then sets up a relationship to the existing that makes it very easy for us to demolish, right? Before we've even specified anything, mm-hmm. just because we don't want to draw the existing. And that's a little bit of a of a of a a kind of professional problem as well. And people started talking about that in terms of, you know, it does take someone's time to draw and that is expensive. Well, yes and no, right? It takes time, but in this day and age with all the data we have, depending on the site, that's just the click away, right? Yes. To put those to put those marks on the page. So <laughs> yes. Yeah. There's a conference coming up at, at Harvard on kind of data and society that is dealing with, you know, some of these technology companies are starting to, to kind of take over this, this thinking space, right? In terms of what is going to happen to spatial data in cities. And Google Alphabet is one of them in Toronto. So some of the Beth Coleman and other folks are, are doing a conference at Harvard that's going to be looking at technology in cities and what it is that happens mm-hmm. to these 
to this data. But it's something that architects are usually not a part of that conversation. I feel like I'm just slipping into it, but it's it's usually right. it's usually folks who are working already in public data, whether it's this kind of social media world or governance of data, you know, that I feel like right. our, our field hasn't yet really grasped that we're we're already in the midst of a kind of public data when we work on space. Well, I think it's interesting that there's this Particularly now, there's this expectation that you stay within the boundaries of your property in order to make that that jewel, right? The aesthetics of a of a site or of, of a of an architectural problem. So, in some respects, it doesn't surprise me that in architecture that doesn't happen. It does surprise me that it does not get to the depth of investigation that I would hope you would see in landscape architecture. That looking at sites or looking at places through the lens of data to create these landscapes and reveal them is really ripe territory to investigate the practice, to investigate technology, all these things come out of it. But it doesn't seem like anyone's making that connection quite yet. Well, hopefully this is related to what you were just going to say, but if there were a landscape architecture Pritzker Prize, who would you give it to? Ooh. Who's who's the model that you're looking at? Who's the model I'm looking at in that light? I don't know. That's a very good question. Actually, no. Um, David Fletcher hmm. did some really interesting work out west where he was mapping things and uh, a lot in, in Los Angeles along the river. And the sort of reveal of the place through data and through computation, really, because he was also programming these things, was really very fascinating. Um, I'd seen that work a few years ago. And then academically, there are uh, a few people out there who are, notably at, at, at the GSD, who are starting to interrogate problems related to landscape through data, and they're just letting the things explode and then come back to see where they're going. So... Is Chris Reed? Yes, Chris Reed. You would he, consider Chris him Reed one of those? Chris Reed would be one of those. Yes. Okay. Yeah, he's great. Although he's a little more direct with the outcomes, but yes, he is mm-hmm. one of those people. So there's some interesting things happening. It's just, I don't know, maybe it's it's early yet, right? People are saying or, or seeing these things and saying, oh, I never thought about things that way. And then there's also this, within landscape, there's this really interesting push towards looking at dredge as a material and as a, as a space, right? So looking at rivers and inlets as, as these places that produce a product that needs to be dealt with somehow. And mm. that in itself is this, there's this reciprocity between how you manage a landscape and at the same time create a landscape based off of that byproduct. So that's been a lot of, there's been a lot of discussion around that. So the other things are kind of off to the sides right now. Okay. Is Cleveland on your radar at all as far as landscape and dredging and rivers? Because they famously had this incredibly toxic river that I think is called the Cuyahoga. 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 Yes. And it was yeah. on it was yeah. on fire. It was so yes. toxic it was on fire and they're they're celebrating. I went to the CUDC, the Cleveland Urban Design Collective. I guess two weeks ago, and they're planning this amazing 50-year anniversary of that event. Basically, oh. because, which is a kind of weird thing, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> like it right. was so toxic, it was on fire, and now it's 50 years later. But I, I think it slots in 
in in one way, it's like the events that are marking the 50 year anniversaries of many of the riots that happened in 67 or 68, depending oh, on where you are. Oh, that's interesting. Right? Right. And, and that, mm-hmm. I, I feel like I was on the early wave of that, you know, these 50 year kind of um, protest rebellion anniversaries, because in Detroit, the big rebellion that burned down downtown happened in 67. So, so, so it, you know, in Detroit, this, this already cycled through and now it's coming here in New Jersey to Trenton, but what's happening in Cleveland, they're demarcating it also in relationship to environmental action because apparently the mayor at the time, and he was one of the early black American mayors in, you know, major city in this country, he connected the cleanup of the river to environmental justice. And according to the folks at the CUDC, I haven't had time to research this on my own, but according to these folks, um, this was really a key part of the early political organizing for the Clean Water Act. Okay. Okay. And I, I think I've seen something similar to that or supporting that that that, that statement. I can't recall where, though. Yet another quick flip through, but no, Cleveland is not directly on my radar. Partially because there's a there's a a group that's really invested in dredge, and I I'm fairly sure Cleveland is one of their their target sites for that very reason. Mm-hmm. Um, so I let the experts with um, all the technology and the the connections and grants do all that stuff, and then I'm just trying to figure out the other stuff on the other side. Right, but it seems to me that there's also an interesting connection, as Cleveland being a point of departure, of environmental justice in all the manipulations of these particular types of landscapes, or these cities, really, you know, as an urbanism where there's this reciprocity between who's living there or what's there, what's the material in place, and what are we, again, what are we pulling out and what are we putting in, in place in order to claim that this is a healthy or a vital city mm-hmm. or neighborhood in the city. Uh, which could actually be very interesting as an examination of not just Cleveland, but Pittsburgh, which is going through its own sort of throes and renaissance. Any of the any number of the Rust Belt cities, uh, I, I'm curious if they they could be examined through these this dual lens of both how water is treated and how people are being treated or neighbors are treated as materials mm. or, or products. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, especially because public housing often was located next to industrial sites when mm-hmm. industrial sites were still toxic. Yeah, there's a, a lot of ways that environmental justice overlaps, you know, with, right. with a concern for urban ecology. And that's a story that I know about more from Oakland, from the West Coast, that there's, you know, such a strong kind of synergy between, you know, environmental justice is something that is a specifically urban and political movement. Mm-hmm. And I really didn't know about this Cleveland, you know, history until recently. So my hunch is that there's a lot more of these stories out there. Oh, right. Oh, absolutely. Um, I remember many, many, many years ago, hearing about grad students in Toronto putting their, their film in the water or maybe this is Rochester, putting their film in the water and developing it as their master's thesis project. So water quality in place has always been an issue. It's just a matter of when and how they attack it. So like the Google Alphabet project that's being built in Toronto, that clears out industrial warehouse 
site. But then at the same time, it brings up this larger issue of what to do with the river, which is the Don River, that comes into basically floods the site or would flood the site if they did not dredge that area annually or as they're proposing with this new development, create a, a, a neck that kind of allows any overflow to move further south instead of hitting the, the bend, that's, the 90-degree bend that's there right now. But in the process of changing this, there, there's this really big question about what's happening with the downtown and how affordable will Toronto really be. Mm. So they're beyond the... Toronto in that particular location is beyond the question of, well, what are we doing with affordable housing? And they're in that next level of, okay, we're clearing a lot of people out or we're making the city into a very, this core, this particular area into a very expensive territory. Who's going to live there? And how are they going to occupy that particular neighborhood, let alone the rest of the city? So you see it as a kind of done deal that it will be a very privileged kind of neighborhood. Well, I was recently at a, a, a conference in Tucson and one of the presenters did a, uh, her presentation was directly on this. And she was explaining that their goal is to make this into a pilot smart city. Right. So with all the stuff that's going on, all the infrastructure that's going in there, all the control, I can't see it being anything but. Uh, and I can't see as far down the road it's gone. I can't see it not happening in one fashion or another. It might take a little bit longer, but it's been on the boards for decades as a project that uh, needs to happen. You know, there's the there was the recent competition that uh, MVVA won for what's happening now. Then uh, any number of urban designers have presented or proposed solutions for that particular area. So they're on that timeline where they're at the point where they need to get something in there to make it happen. Otherwise, and, right. who knows? And it's, yeah. and it's all privately, privately led. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Well, it's, it's, it's weird because it's, there's the, the public portion of it too. So there's this ideation and what would, how would you envision this really, this area working? And so there's this public face to it and the sort of facilitation of private dollars. Yeah. Eventually moving and, in. Right? And at the basic level, you know, it, it seems that some people's data is always going to be worth more than others. <laughs> so, yes, yes. Right? <laughs> right? And then it's kind of the smart city will yep. have its favorites. Yep. You know? And I question some of the validity of that. So how does the street remain vital if everything is so smart, you know exactly what you need for storefront so there's no risk? Right, little things like that begin to call into question: Is this really this thing going to be all that vibrant, or is it just going to be a ghost town of some type? Another almost a, 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 a incredibly dense suburban space within the city. I'm really curious about what's going to happen. Mm. Are you following the landscape projects in Detroit at all? I am not following them um, okay. as much as, well, not at all, really. I haven't had a chance to stare at them. Because the, the city, you know, the planning office went through a whole process where now there are four finalists for the west side of the riverfront in Detroit. And it, and it's kind of the the who's who of landscape architecture. You know, you've got Michael von Volkenberg, Walter Hood, you know, you've got James Corner. And I, I went down to the last 
trip to Detroit that I made a few weeks ago when I was kicking off a project, I got to see the the models because the city is exhibiting them. So it's this it's very public facing also the whole process, which is really nice. But I felt I had to acknowledge my own ignorance in looking at landscape architecture models and really understanding, you know, how how much I am not able to interpret things like seasons and how things will change over the seasons. You know, all mm-hmm. these kind of things that mm-hmm. I know are, are so important. And then also it's it's hard to look at a model for a site that's really large and 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 read a new park and not immediately assume it's going to be very precious, you know? So also being right. able, I could look at a housing strategy, right? And and kind of have a read for, for how it's coping with its economics. But I, I don't have the lens to look at a landscape strategy right. in the same way. Well, you know, the model is one part of it in that, in that aspect. So you look at those things and it's like, oh yeah, that that's nice. Or I would really love to see that. But really comes out, and I think that the th- three uh, firms you mentioned are, are, are good at it, are the illustrative diagrams that really explain what's going to happen to that place over time, mm-hmm. which is the really difficult part, right? You know, and the disconnect between the two disciplines. You know, you think about an architecture project and it lasts five years, right? In terms of construction? In terms of, well, in terms of you. Think about program, you start designing, and you go through construction five years. Okay. And that's that's a little tight, but even through that period of time, you get a complete project of, of some type or a mature project, right? You're at the point where you're going to photograph it. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you look at a landscape project, you know, five years, the project goes in and it's installed and you've got to wait another 20 years before it starts to look mature and another 20 years after that before it is mature enough to really represent what it's supposed to be doing, right? So there are these very different scales of imagining how the place works. And then there are all these other disconnects and uncertainties, right? So the architecture is going through one cycle of use and reuse and reconstruction or or deconstruction. And Landscape's kind of slowly plodding along, doing what it's supposed to be doing, but it takes it a point in time to get there to say, okay, I'm done. Yeah. I. It's funny. What taught me that in a direct way was really living in Lafayette Park in Detroit and, mm-hmm. and talking to folks who had lived there at different decades. And um, we knew, my wife and I knew an older couple who lived on the side that was not the Mies van der Rohe, but the local architect who kind of came in after the developer died, you know, so it's all planned mm-hmm. by Hilbersheimer. And then you had Andrew Caldwell, I think is his name, the landscape architect, right? Working with Mies. And these older friends of ours, I felt so bad for them because they had, they were one of the first families that moved into the townhouses, but they felt so exposed because the trees hadn't grown yet. So they right. sold their townhouse, you know, oh, yeah, yeah, right. in like the first five years. <laughs> and, yeah. right. and, and, now, and then that's about five years is the point in time when things start to really get hit stride if they're going to, and exactly. then you get a different space. Exactly. Oh, that's a bummer. Yeah. That's a shame. But yeah, it makes a, bit, it makes a big difference, right? You have to think about these things and say, just wait, just be patient, just be patient. Which I think in some respects is it puts a different pressure on landscape architecture. You know, you have to show an immediate return. Mm. You know, everyone wants to see, all right, what are you really going to produce? Architecture is in the title. Therefore, we need to know what's happening 
as we're moving in, we want to know what it's going to look like or what it's going to do for us. So there's been a, a different sort of pressure as far as performance and, and return on investment uh, with landscape as compared to architecture. So one of the things I've seen you posting about, and we post back and forth, is kind of how mm-hmm. how the field, at least of architecture, right? If you put landscape architecture for aside for a moment, kind of conventional yep. AIA, built environment, HUD, and all of that how it seems to be so either deeply conservative, right, in terms of its priorities, whether that means Uh a kind of traditionalism and provincial, like a kind of provincial nostalgia, or whether that means an actual alliance with real estate development and profit maximization, right? Right. And how also the field seems to be so unaware of anything related to kind of black and brown realities on the ground, right? I saw you posting also about you kind of critiquing how the AIA is even writing about education in this way, right? Right. The uh, survey report. Yeah. How it even writes about its own surveys. Um, How Mm -hmm. does this play out in landscape architecture? Is it even worse or, or is it just, (laughs) right? I mean, wow. I would say, you know, I would say, it's different. Um, landscape architecture tries to quote unquote do better. There's a more open position. And I think there's, I think going back to the, my point about property and territory, I think there's an understanding that there are properties in their territories that aren't just controlled by, you know, to use the, the, the trope old white men. So I think that that's there, but I don't think it is explicitly, leveraged as you would assume. So Ken had made a mention in a, in a previous podcast about the ASLA and what they tweet out and the things they're looking for, what, what they're promoting and how they take a position, which is true. They take, they, they do take these environmental stances and, and they're very clear in advocating for these things. But if you look closer, they're, thin on the social aspects. They're they're infrastructure projects, they're environmental projects that don't necessarily involve people, more like the place or or, or a particular type of landscape, but the social agenda starts to drop off at that point. So there's this weird disconnect between what their landscape architects are grounded in versus uh, what the SLA is advocating for versus what the ASLA, the efforts are trying to make. So they've been doing for a number of years, a uh, annual workshop or a retreat about diversity, a diversity summit. That's what it is. So they've really been trying to make an effort to reach out to um, people of color to figure out what the next steps are, recognizing that the demographics are going to change. But you never really see what's happening or you never see it in a, in something they're advocating for as far as a bill goes or something like that. So it's different, right? It's like, yeah, you're doing some stuff, but I want to see you do more or, you know, what, where's this really headed? Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because I presume that in landscape architecture, you're generally starting with a kind of public client or a public lens, right? If not the actual kind of property itself being publicly owned in some way. So that, you know, there I would I I would I would expect that the the aspect of the field being so publicly oriented changes a little bit its politics too, you know, that that you're right. not catering always to some privileged client 
you know, who's got concerns around image in a certain way, right? Or concerns around maximizing, if not profit, even the kind of the kind of image of profit, right? Um, Right. That that would change the dynamics. Well, it does. It it changes it to a degree, but there are still those uh, private clients, right? And those private clients are bread and butter. You know, if you think about the range of, of things students will do once they graduate. Um, you get anything from people who will go into landscape contracting to parks and recreation and everything in between. And there's a lot of privacy in there. So those really major public projects that everyone's looking for to advocate for what landscape is, is this is this public space that's always shared are really far and few in between. And if you look at the pattern, you see who gets those projects over and over again, right? Um, it's, it's the headliners. Mm-hmm. So it makes for these really, really interesting and sometimes frustrating disconnects. And I think that's why this whole notion of property becomes very important because of the assumption that, well, we will always do public projects or w- the things we will do will always be for the greater good, when in reality, there's this other side that you need to reconcile yourself with as far as practice goes and and applying a perceived greater good or an agenda of some type to it. I feel like that's something that I am always, or not always, but I, I, I feel that I need to learn more about this moment of 50 years ago, right? This moment of the late 1960s, maybe into the early 1970s. I know at Columbia, where I did my MRC, you know, there was the big takeover of the whole mm-hmm. university, right, in protest. And, right. and, and one of the kind of micro histories of that moment is that it was actually the Puerto Rican and Black architecture students. They had a kind of joint right. club probably because there was like not that many of them, right? So, so they, had a, mm-hmm. they had a joint club that actually sparked the takeover because the takeover was very much around terms of public property in terms of how the university would expand itself and whether that expansion would mean using some kind of, I don't know if it was eminent domain or just the purchase to to take over a, a park in Harlem, right? So that that's kind of right. sparked this whole protest. And, and I feel like that late 1960s into the early 1970s then was a moment where there were a number of folks, Max Bond was already, you know, practicing and, and, and really building mm-hmm. up his practice. I worked for a Columbia grad who had his own practice in San Francisco, who was a, you know, a, a, Black graduate of Columbia with an urban planning degree, doing big infrastructure projects. You know, of course, Norma Scleric was working at SOM doing big projects. Like mm-hmm. there was, there was a moment of you know whether they were municipal projects or or kind of corporate firms where there was a different vision about how black architects um, working in the discipline would change the discipline itself. Right, and that. I can't trace that legacy in a continuous line. That line becomes broken, right? When I look to trace that legacy, it really starts skipping off in the 80s into the 90s. Right. You know? Right. Well, it, it goes back to these are people who demonstrated that they were really good. Therefore, they were given a break, right? And they were allowed to do some things. And then they leveraged that that opportunity from there right? as compared to the norm. So 
I think it also has to do with property the way you're talking about it, too. You know, that yeah. that large, you know, the corporate firms were doing projects that weren't just high rise office towers. You know, they were interesting embassies and things like that, you know. Right. right? And then also m- municipal projects were doing something in the middle of the city mm-hmm. that wasn't just a kind of a Google corporate you know, concern, right? What's the next big thing that's just going to give us money? Yeah. We want one of those, yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's true, because that was also a period of time when things were still political, right? You could still talk about a building, and it wasn't just a form. There were were implications wrapped around it. Why would you put it there? What's what's the language, or what's, what's the social and cultural significance of it? That was a very big discussion with these projects what's the what's the good behind them as compared to what's the return mm-hmm. i think that that language has changed significantly over the past 20 years and so that's why we see these the waning or these gaps and in, increasing gaps in who's being recognized for their skill sets because they're not part of the the model or the mode yeah i mean just kind of looping this back to the the pritzker that we started talking about with. I think the mm-hmm. Pritzker Prize has been trying to give a message for at least a decade now, you know, because Sejima and, you know, Alejandra Aravena, you, you could put in a similar mm-hmm. camp in some ways, mm-hmm. right? In mm-hmm. terms of in terms of structuring a practice around also the question of who gets to be the client and how, right? And that, that could be egalitarian. Right. And of those three that I just named, I actually think Doshi is has something very specific that I, I don't know all the Pritzker Prize winners, but he seems pretty unique in the sense that he also had the ambition to give back to his hometown, right? And also right. build institutions and really build for folks who are at the margins of of what we think housing might be able to do in terms of extreme poverty. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. absolutely. And that's and that, that, I think that, that what's really fascinating, I agree with you with the, the whole argument that the Pritzker is pushing and trying to to push the boundaries of of what good architecture or exemplary architecture or architectural practice should be. And I think that that's, that quiet message has been very interesting to watch and that they're not saying anything out loud. It's just, well, we're going to put this, put these people forward. Mm-hmm. We're going to let you do your homework, right? Mm-hmm. You're going to go look at them. You're going to figure them out. And then if you're really smart, you're going to start following the thread, these breadcrumbs that we've been dropping and you'll look at the body work and realize what the larger agenda is. Yeah, yeah, and especially here in the US, really try to connect the dots, right? Because yep. maybe maybe the next Pritzker work needs to come out of HUD, you know? We, you know, I mean, <laughs> could you imagine? <laughs> well, yeah, that would be interesting, right? To see what would, what what would that really mean, right? I, what would growing, that vision mean? Yeah, growing up in DC, I used to walk past the Marshall Brewer HUD building on a regular basis before, you know, before I knew anything about architecture. And mm-hmm. I, I mean, that building itself is amazing. You know, if there were a way to take something of the the logic of, of Marcel Brewer, you know, and, and really understand that this is a major work of architecture and that that needs to be part of the standard of what a place like right. HUD is working on, that, that, that would be a very different right. way of, of this country working on its version of the, the limit condition of housing. Right. Well, that would also mean that HUD would, not just HUD, but there would have to be a reckoning to say that it's not just four walls and a roof, right? 
It's, oh. it's more than it's, it's the people who occupy the space and their needs, their backgrounds, their histories, all these things need to be embodied in that architecture or, or respected as part of that architecture. And in many respects, that is the architecture, not the thing that you're constructing. Then you can have that discussion. Well, and at the same time, I mean, I need to listen to your, your podcast on this now, but I, I think since your podcast, Ben Carson has been doing some of these tours to existing, you know, kind of housing projects and some of what he's voiced there, right, is that the housing itself needs to be a form of a punishment, right? That you don't want to make yes. the interior yes. too nice. And and that's something that I feel like this country needs to grapple with much more directly and architecture needs to participate in, that there is a criminalizing of, of, of poverty that actually exactly. implicates what's possible you know, for our architecture, that, that, that becomes part of the brief, right. To make it, to actually make the architecture punishing. Right. And I don't think, I think we, we look at that as something that the problem is in terms of cost, right. But that's not a mm-hmm. cost issue. That's something else. Right. But I, well, and, and that, I think part of that something else is that there's a sense of, or an assumption that this is not a permanent situation, right. That the, that, that the individual should not get comfortable in this situation, Therefore, we will not make it comfortable for them. And that's the the double-edged sword. But then the other hidden thing, the other knife, is that, yeah, we don't want you around anyway. That's what it is. And that goes back yeah. to social Darwinism, you know? <laughs> right? Yeah. We don't want you here. So no, that's exactly what we're it going is. to we're going to articulate our stance, whoever you may be, wherever you may be, that we're not going to give you these long-term benefits or or fundamental needs of of dwelling because we just need to shift you from one spot to another we need to make sure everything's in play you know and in, in that respect it's almost like you know the great migration was marked during a period it has it has its time frame but now we fragmented the migration into these smaller bits mm-hmm. and it's based off of how we need to shift property in these territories around to the best of our benefit at the loss of those others. That's, uh, yeah, I've been rereading W.B. Du Bois's The Philadelphia Negro exactly mm-hmm. to try to unpack that, where, you know, he's writing in 1899 and doing the first really precise sociological survey of a city, but it's actually very right. spatial, you know, and, and right. he's at the same time, he's trying to, to attack this social Darwinist argument that black people will somehow both disappear as a race because black people are inferior and that social Darwinism is so effective, which is this really weird argument mm-hmm. I didn't know was an argument at the time. And then the one that kind of survived, the the other racist argument that survived much more, that black people are a problem that that becomes carried into the body, into the neighborhood, wherever black people are, and that there will be some kind of ramifications, right, into the environment. Right. And that's the right. one, that's the, the bizarre racist argument that we that we continue to have to deal with you know that Uh you know when when there's what he traces what Du Bois traces in Philadelphia is this denial of jobs that actually black neighborhoods are being charged more right than areas Uh that are integrated and so that Uh and that black people because they cannot access housing anywhere else are forced to pay that higher rent right that's something that it's over 100 years later and the the surprise that we now face, you know, gentrification, it's, 
it's not a surprise, right? It's just what happens when Black neighborhoods are no longer priced higher in rent than the other neighborhoods. Right, so, right, exactly. Or they're they're controlled and manipulated in a way that those rents will not be higher, right? So then you can get into broken windows policy, et cetera, et cetera, as a way to, you know, you're forcing these properties into a particular position in order to benefit this long-term control of both the property and the money or the the capital that comes from that property. Well, and that's where you're getting into more like what started to happen in the 1970s with the Bronx is burning, right? Yep. Yeah. And mm-hmm. that I feel like, you know, architects are somewhat aware of through sociology because the sociology is so rich, right? On disinvestment itself. But the language behind that though, because there's a disinvestment, but then there are the two stories, right? Well, there's disinvestment or well, they burn their houses down, right? So which story you hear becomes this very important tell of, or, or, or it's that fork in the road that determines how you approach that history, right? Is there a larger social history behind disinvestment and control of body and people through not just jobs, but also where they lived? Or is it just that, oh, you know, social Darwinism, they, you know, see, told you they're inferior and look what they're doing now. Well, I think... I think for me, you know, one of the takeaways of talking to you is that these terms of property are so critical, you know, in -hmm. in that they then imply not just kind of delineations of private and public, um, but also relationships to processes that might be exploitative, you know, that might be, you know, not just divesting from neighborhoods, but also you know, ways that, that property can can imply relationships that are set up to be what might be called, you know, kind of competitive, but that mm-hmm. that they don't have to be, right? Like that right. that 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 property can obviously, I think, you know, those of us who work in the built environment tend to be very aware of the ways in which space can be an equalizer or be a benefit beyond those who own it in the same way that you own an asset. But that's not something that just happens, right? Right. Well, that's the whole thing. So you have property, and this is this is one of my my favorite rants: is that there's a difference between a site, there's a difference between property, and there's a difference between landscape. And it's that assembly of all those things that gives you a landscape, and then you work within that, whether it be a site or a property. But to understand what that relationship is, that's when you get that opportunity to make those commonalities, right? That 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 shared better. I won't call it a good, but that better, whatever that issue is or that matter that you're really trying to attack. If you don't understand the specific within its larger context, you're just going through the motions as far as I'm contending. This makes me think we probably should be wrapping it up, but this makes me think that actually having a dialogue between landscape architecture and architecture would be really productive in changing the kind of awareness or facility of architecture to understand, you know, white privilege, right? And how it operates. Right. I feel like these things are are so like obscure in 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 terms of architecture, right? And yet, you know, if you're talking about governance, if you're talking about institutions, you know, it's expected that you you understand like basic things like how history plays out or, you know, mm-hmm. how, what constitutes mm-hmm. white privilege, right? But somehow in architecture, it's like, no, 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 we've got other things to work on, <laughs> right? And, right, exactly. And, and, and it makes me think that, 
you know, as much as it's difficult to change the conversation from within architecture, and then it seems like you got to do that within your own turf first, and then you know, mm-hmm. figure out something else that actually, <laughs> actually, kind of a, a dialogue between landscape architecture and architecture might might be a way of you know changing that conversation. Landscapes, it's got its hangups too. Yeah, you know, so I, I, I'm not convinced that landscape is has has the answer or that exchange does. I think it there needs to be an outside activator. And I was thinking about this recently, that what needs to happen somewhere, someone needs to start an architectural economic history program. <laughs> yeah, you know, I'm laughing because, because economic history itself doesn't even exist in this country, much less in architecture economic history. But I, it does. Okay, tell me. Quietly, there. Um, I, if I recall correctly, Stanford and Berkeley now require their undergraduate students to take an economic history pro- course, okay. okay, right, as an elective. So this implication that it's not just social. It's in the case of architecture and landscape, it's not just formal. There's also a lot of other baggage, namely money and all these other conditions wrapped up in this thing. And that's what makes the environment. I think that's a really important discussion that we're not having. Yeah. And I don't think we have the tools to have that conversation. But you know what? We, we do. I mean, this is where Adrienne Marie Brown, the, the activist in Detroit, she's got, I can't remember mm-hmm. right now the name of her book. Hopefully we can add it in the link. It's basically about how she learned kind of collective organizing. And, and she, she was also working through science fiction. She started something called the Octavia's Brood, which was folks working on Octavia Butler inspired science fiction. And, and, you know, it's, you can, you can start anywhere. You can start anywhere. So I, I think we do. The discipline is so brilliant and intelligent and has so many tools. Mm-hmm. And we do have the mm-hmm. tools. I think you saying something like economic architecture, economic history, uh, just even imagining that is wonderful. I, I you know, I kind of minored in economics undergrad and I didn't have a class on economic history till I went to France for a semester. And I was in Paris and, and economic history was very much about unemployment. And it's like, yeah, that changes how you think about economics when you start with unemployment right. as an experience, as as a social reality that then has right. to be, you know, grappled with in terms of policy rather than just, you know, interest rates and stock market all the time. Right. Right. So exactly. Very exactly. Different, yeah. Very different. Those very projective manipulations or, or, or tools. And I think that that's the nice, interesting thing about it, right? Because then if you use something like that and as a history, right? So you can look back and you can cal- you can look at the calibration relative to all these other events occurring and then say, all right, what's happening in the next 20 years, 50 years, what you can create these speculations. And I think that's really, really interesting, but they're not just built speculations. They're built speculations that are directed towards something, right? There's a goal that doesn't necessarily have something wrapped around it. Well, I'm in. I'm in. It sounds... (laughs) (laughs) You make me want to collaborate on whatever this is. Cool. Well, I got. I have. I have to. Find, I have to find that club, right? I have to find the gang that'll that'll get that together. Okay. I don't have a degree in economics, so you know, I've got the history degree, you know, mm-hmm. the architectural history degree, undergraduate. So mm-hmm. it's a different thing. But yeah, I would love to see that happen somewhere. And I think that uh, one of the things that really got me thinking about it was the U.S. 2050 competition that was announced early in the fall, or 
late fall. Which one is that? It wasn't an architectural competition. That was the big problem I had with it. Okay. Uh, I can't recall who who uh, sponsored it. Um, uh, the Peterson uh, Foundation sponsored it. And the whole point was to basically crunch all the data and tell the story of what the United States will look like in, uh, I believe, it's some major metropolitan areas, but what the United States would look like in uh, 2050. Hmm. Really straightforward and simple thing, right? Hmm. So if we can crunch those numbers, we can also start to speculate what those built environments will look like. Mm-hmm. So why there's no inclusion of quote-unquote design in this process kind of baffled me. And then just looking back at the history of all of this and thinking, well, there's a pairing here that's that, that's missing. And this is a really interesting opportunity. You know, I've just been mulling this over for a while. Yeah. Or it's just gelling. Yeah, completely, completely. I think, I think a lot of the work has to be speculative. And, you know, maybe what you're talking about could also take the form of you know, speculations that are presented to foundations who might be interested in supporting them. Exactly, right? I mean, I did this kind of, I had this show on the road for a little bit that I took to Pittsburgh and Detroit on this is what we will build when we get our reparations, which was just wanting to continue the argument from Ta-Nehisi Coates and, and take it into uh, the built environment right. already, you know, not not waiting for permission. Where'd you do that, 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 that show in Pittsburgh? It wasn't a show. It was just this workshop and then also well, so to speak. a kind of uh, symposium with uh, with a poet. So that was sponsored by the Center for African-American Poetry and Poetics in... in Pittsburgh. That's part of Pittsburgh University, Pitts University. University of Pittsburgh? University of Pittsburgh, uh, yes. University of Pittsburgh, okay. I was just curious whether you were actually engaging communities or not. Well, yeah. Yeah, it was it was okay. it was hosted at a at a local organization that invited the public. Do you know where that was by any chance? Um I'm blanking on the name of it right now. Point of transparency, yes. I am I will proudly say I'm a product or a byproduct of the Hill District. So oh, okay. I'm always curious when oh, things yeah. happen like that. Okay, okay. Yeah. yeah, we were not in the hills, but there was a table that that wanted to make a proposal for the Hill District. So, okay. so part of my collage afterwards puts some some kind of dense what what then I start to sketch is like these concrete, you know, almost they're not they're too large to be bunkers, um, but this like a, this kind of concrete clusters because one of the groups was really interested in protecting the hill district from gentrification in some ways or some kind right. of land grab. Yeah, right. Well. Too late for that. Yeah, what I know, was I know. One of the first, <laughs> yeah, one of the first public housing projects in the United States got torn down, and now it's mixed rate, and there's controversy behind how they're managing that. There's stories about how people are being were rejected from living in moving into the new units. Oh no, even after they were displaced. Well, it was before construction started, but it was okay. this whole deal of well. We're going to enforce rules in a way that we haven't enforced them in in some time in order to make sure the numbers were as low as possible. And right. so there were there were stories like that that they're out there. And it's a messy thing. So but that's another story altogether. Yeah, I want to um, go back to Pittsburgh. So what okay, so one last thing. What do you want to say before we <laughs> before we wrap up? I think that there needs to be a serious discussion about the built environment whether it be architecture, landscape architecture, and what are the things we're using to set the grounds 
for these discussions, right? It's not just building as usual or whatever the client wants and whatever the check says. There needs to be this other conversation, this long-term conversation, dare I say, a theoretical discussion about what this trajectory is and who it benefits and who it doesn't benefit and how we can change these things, right? Mm -hmm. And then how do we get this message out? Right. It seems like in being so nervous about what we do as designers, we have retreated into the corner and done some and started to do some very specific things. Right. We build things and then we walk away and we try and find the next thing without trying to build a larger body of speculation or or attacking larger issues. I keep on thinking about the AIA's statement after 45 was elected. Mm-hmm. And at the same time on Archonnect, they were showing the REBA responses to candidates, which are these really thorough manifestos or analysis of the manifestos and position papers. I was longing for something like that from from both the SLA and the AIA so you could make these you can make a, a more critical decision about who might benefit you in your practice. Um, so things like that, I, I, I think that needs to come out of design instead of just, well, we need, to, we need to know what a contract is, we need to know how to abide by that contract, and we need to know how to make the, that skinny margin work as efficiently as possible. Yeah. Well, and at the same time, no one kind of gives up power willingly, right? So, right. I mean, I think my, what I want to wrap up with is you've really, talking with you has really reminded me, I think something that I was more aware of when I was still living in, in Brooklyn and maybe aware of in Detroit too, that, that it's just important to cultivate allies, right? And be listening to right. how other people are framing right. what they're doing and, and that, you know, getting out of the disciplinary silo, you know, it, it's, it's, it's important, Absolutely. right? Because, because your allies might not be in your disciplinary silo. They might they might be doing other work. Yeah. Right. We always complain about going to parties and being bored with ourselves, <laughs> but then we keep on doing it, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. Well no, not me. <laughs> not me. <laughs> yeah. okay. All right. Well, um, good. It's been great. Yeah. yeah. Good to talk with you, Mark. Thanks to Mitch and Mark for guest hosting this week. If you're interested in taking over the mics for a future episode, get in touch with us. You can reach us on Twitter at our Twitter account, Arc Sessions, or with hashtag Arconnect Sessions. You can also send us an email to connect at arconnect.com. If you enjoy the podcast, please consider rating us and giving us a review on iTunes. Thanks again, and talk to you next time.